welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast. This is episode 94. Well, the goal has been to have an interview the first, well, for the second uh, week of the month and a uh, discussion between myself and Bill on a topic of my choosing for the fourth Monday of the month. Bill's a little overextended. Bill's a lot overextended. And uh, I am I am in the midst of uh, making enormous decisions for my own professional future. So for this evening, this is, of course, Sunday evening. I'm putting it together for Monday morning. I am going to take the three Marine Condic interviews from last summer and, uh, for your convenience, uh, splice them all together. And I will go ahead and preface it with a little bit of a, uh, the discussion here because I have picked up and I have begun, uh, the book that she did with her brother Samuel Condic on human embryos, human persons is the title of the book. So it's a, um, their goal is to do a rigorous, you know, neo-Thomist philosophy, philosophical accounting of the deep, you know, the in- intricate biological facts of what we know about embryology. Um, I'm a little disappointed in the book so far, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we're still in the part where Samuel Condick, I can only imagine, is laying out a, a basis of metaphysics for us to go on with, uh, Thomistic metaphysics. And of course, he's trying to, he's, uh, so as an example, uh, is mostly based around trying to distinguish the situation of a marble statue versus a marble block um, as a sort of a continuing entity uh, versus a human person. And I can't possibly go into all of that uh, tonight because I just got back from a trip to New York. A great trip to New York, but it is... Uh, I'm exhausted and I can't do this complete justice. I will do this complete justice, well, as complete as I can in one of my later conversations with Bill. In any case, I am reading... Of course, I'm a mineralogist. <laughs> so I am reading this as an expert, scientific expert in that uh, a field, you know, I know what marble is. I, I know a lot about what marble is. I will venture to say I know more than either Samuel or Marine Condic about marble and its composition and its history. And I think I'm competent to have something to say about it. I don't think their example is constructed all that well. It leaves an awful lot hanging. It ignores a great deal of relevant facts. Um, and of course, it's meant to be a short introduction. Um, and it would not be the first book that I've read that started with a short introduction that oversimplifies some things and, uh, blunders a bit and then followed is followed by when the book reaches the, you know, wheelhouse of the people in question. So in particular, Marine Condic being an embryologist will know what, you know, will be able to, to parse out far more strictly what should be going on uh, in the rest of the book. So I still have high hopes for the rest of the book, but that is, you know, that that's, it is problem is problematic. There, there are some problems in it so far. Um, and that brings up, I will note something that I have seen in my reading of the Thomists, the, well, not just Thomists, but, um, medieval philosophers in general, certainly Thomas Aquinas being one of them, and philosophers on down to the present day in my admittedly scattershot reading of them. Um, I think there is a 
this compelling desire to go and philosophically analyze human beings, because of course that's what we want to. That's what we. That's our goal. That's what we want to get to. I do not think the foundational work of analyzing the simpler things has been done well enough to give us the philosophical tools and instincts that we need in order to approach the far more complex and fraught issue of what is a human being, and especially to answer the modern question of how do human beings differ from purely material objects? Where is that line? Can we find that line? Do we know for certain where that line is? Um, are there animals that have some more rudimentary form of spirit? I mean, there's dozens of questions you could ask. This is not the place to ask them. Um, but in any case, I will go ahead and reprovide to you the interviews that we, the, the entire interview in this episode. So this is going to be a long one. Buckle up. And if you have listened to them before and, you know, aren't in the mood to listen to them again, then, uh, well, you can skip the rest of this episode, admittedly. Um, but it was fascinating, and she is absolutely um, an expert in her field, and it was a fascinating interview to talk about the biology and the moral implications from that perspective. So without further ado, once again, here is our interview with Maureen Kondik at the Society of Catholic Scientists Conference at Notre Dame in 2019. We are... Greatly privileged to have Dr. Maureen Kondik from the University of Utah here. She is um, the one being awarded the St. Albert Award at this year's Society of Catholic Scientists Conference. So we're actually talking the afternoon before the conference begins. So uh, Dr. Kondik has her bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, a PhD from UC Berkeley. That must have been an oppressive environment. Uh, <laughs> and she did a postdoc at the University of Minnesota. She has been at the University of Utah since 1997. Correct. Um, and has been awarded uh, a number of awards, both for her science and for her um, stand on life issues. So with that, um, you know, I'm not necessarily one of those people who like to read uh, a speaker's entire, you know, we could go on for five minutes and read your, your entire list of citations. Um, but uh, I would encourage the listener to look them up for himself or herself. And uh, hopefully we can just get started a little bit. Um, so we'd like to talk today both about your personal experience as a um, <laughs> a, uh, a researcher in embryology and uh, related fields who has felt the need to stand up for what's true in difficult situations, as well as, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of what you do, since our audience, I think, is a number of scientists in it. And I think a number of them would be interested in knowing, just hearing more about that. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to engage all of those topics in whatever order seems to make sense. Okay. Well, we'll do our best. Making sense is uh, something that we work on. It's a goal that we aspire toward. We don't necessarily always get all the way there. So, yeah. So, so uh, at what point did you feel drawn toward biology and biological sciences? That's a, It's an interesting question, because I think... Um, my, my vocation as a scientist happened quite early. I lived in a small town in the Midwest and uh, was easily bored. So I remember uh, <laughs> going to my local, yeah. my local library, public library, which is a tiny yeah. little library. Yeah. And after I had blasted through all of the young adult section and, and anything else that seemed of interest, I discovered biographies and fell in love with these little little stories from history about real people but with all the drama and, yeah, heartbreak and everything else that yeah. comes along with a biography worthy individual. 
Yeah. Uh, and being the uh, rather OCD person I, I was then and still am, uh, I started at eight. I started reading through all the <laughs> yes. on the shelf. <laughs> and, and I remember vividly that you know when I got to see and I read the biography of Marie Curie, it just I had never ever encountered anybody who I could relate to as strongly as I related to her. And I remember just closing the book and just saying, "That's it." I'm okay. going to win the Nobel Prize in physics and chemistry. I'm going to die from radiation poisoning. It's just my life. It's going right. to be like this. It's going to be like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I decided I was going to be a scientist. My father was a philosopher. My mother um, was, was a mom. And they thought I was completely insane. And that if I just grew up, you know, just had to have something to do with hormones, because I was probably about 12 at the time. Okay. Um, it, would, it would wear off, but it never did. <laughs> <laughs> We're still waiting. We're still, We're still waiting. waiting. We're yeah. still waiting. Yeah. So that's how I know how I got interested in science. Um, and how I got interested in biology, I think, you know, I've often, I've often speculated that there's uh, kind of a reciprocal relationship between the size of the question, its intrinsic interest, mm-hmm. and the precision of the answer. So the really yeah. big questions, like, you know, what is consciousness in the brain? Right. You know? How did life evolve? Right, right. <laughs> sort of the things that you could spend your whole life pondering and that are extremely compelling because they, yeah. they can have such epic dimensions. They're fabulously interesting questions, but you but the answers to them are inherently imprecise. You can never yeah. get a good, clean answer to that question. On the other end, you know, if you're interested in, you know, what the upstream regulatory elements are that drive expression of a particular gene in a particular tissue at a particular yeah. time and in development, you know, you can get down to a 10 or 11 letter answer to that that's extremely precise and very yeah. manipulable, but also intrinsically boring. Right. <laughs> so, so this yeah. is not yeah. not a compelling question, but the precision of the answer is extremely intellectually satisfying. So on that trade-off, everybody's got to find a point where the questions are big enough. Yeah. The answers are precise enough that you yeah. can be satisfied with those. It's actually tractable. Yeah. So, so for me, that turned out to be cells. Um, you know, cells are living units. They they have interesting behaviors. They're unpredictable. Mm-hmm. They have an aesthetically beautiful quality to them. Yeah. You, you can look at them and be pleased by just yeah. their elegance and mm-hmm. and um, complexity. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But they're they're they give you tractable answers. You can you can get precise enough answers that so I had started out in psychology and mm-hmm. trying to understand what was consciousness and how did memory work and mm-hmm. what that whole brain thing was all about. But so, I eventually ended up with the development of the nervous system because that's largely a cellular process and the yeah. precision of the answers is much higher. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get to the point where at the at the end of a five year period you may actually have some answers to a set of questions you ask mm-hmm. in the beginning. And you have tools. You have yeah. you have things that can manipulate the system in the future that you can you can test hypotheses on a very precise level mm-hmm. without without ever losing, you know, the, the beauty and the compelling aspect of a living unit that's responding to the manipulation. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In in ways that uh, I find crystals very elegant, but admittedly they are not as complex. There as as cells are with all of the things that the cell has to accomplish to keep to get its work done. So yeah, and that was um, so that so you've you've kind of it looks like branched out from the nervous system to you know other fields as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that? So so what was your what was your what was your PhD dissertation about? Well, so my PhD was. Um as I said, sort of in neural development in a very, very simple system. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was interested in the factors that control uh, a very, very 
specific behavior of of a, of a single cell in the peripheral nervous system of this organism mm-hmm. that establishes a very characteristic route that it follows mm-hmm. to get to where it needs to go. So, you know, the nervous system is a, ultimately ends up a big computation machine, mm-hmm. but it develops itself without blueprint. And right. yet it has fabulous precision. And the function of the nervous system as a machine, as a calculator, mm-hmm. um, requires or relies on intrinsically very, very precise location connections between cells. Yeah. And these cells can be really, really far away from each other mm-hmm. in early development. And so it's quite mysterious. How do we wire up the nervous system? So that was my question. How, yeah. how do we, how does a cell at a particular location know where, where it needs to mm-hmm. extend, who it needs to talk to, yeah. uh, and who it doesn't? Yeah. Uh, some of this gets refined by behavior later on in development, but as a first pass in the embryo, we set up pretty much the structure of the nervous system yeah. with good accuracy. And honestly, we have no clue. <laughs> even now, <laughs> even after my brilliant thesis, which was, I'm sure, earth-shattering and changed uh, the, uh, in the uh, field uh, and all of that stuff, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're still... Go back uh, and calculate its uh, age index and all of that stuff. <laughs> we're still very, uh, very much in the dark about how it is that the basic uh, principles of wiring happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I started with, was um, development of the nervous system, but that already put me into the general swimming pool of embryonic development. Right. And nothing develops in a vacuum, so right. the nervous system is kind of connected to the development yeah. of all the other things. Yeah. So well, the nerves themselves have the, the glial cells and everything that helps them do what they do. I mean, yep. they're a minority of the cells in the brain, is my understanding. <laughs> yes, we have many more glial cells than we have neural cells. Uh, but but I... Because I was working in a development system, I started mm-hmm. getting more and more interested in embryology. How do how do how does the whole thing put itself together? Yeah. And I started teaching embryology yeah. uh, as a graduate student, and then continued on uh, as a faculty member. So, what the, what was your work at the University of Minnesota? What was the focus there? Uh, continuation of my graduate work, but in a different system. So, uh, I had worked originally in a scientists use all sorts of this. Your listeners, of course, know, you know, model systems that have yeah. strengths only in particular areas. So yeah. my initial system was a great one for um, a very stereotypic pattern of, of neural outgrowth during development. So I was working in um, just a circuit Americana, which is the uh, American locust. Okay. Grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, they have beautiful embryos and fabulously beautiful neurons at the embryonic stage. Uh, but they weren't a really great system for direct relevance to vertebrate models or to yeah. genetics. So yeah. as a postdoc at Minnesota, I was uh, transferring to uh, um, a vertebrate model, so mice and chicks, mostly chicks, okay. uh, looking at various aspects of sensory neural development in that system. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you, and then after that, you you got your faculty position at uh, at Utah. Yes. So. And carried on, then moving a little bit more into um, spinal regeneration, okay, uh, and peripheral nerve regeneration. So uh, that that was involving more mammalian models, rat models, mice models, but continuing to work in chicks because they're a really accessible vertebrate model okay. for the kind of cellular manipulations I was doing. Okay, well, that's interesting. I did not know there was a, a field of biology where they were that much more handy than mice were. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, but not, not a great system for genetics, but a really, really good ses- system for cellular manipulation and, and observation because you can mm-hmm. uh, pretty much leave the embryo intact and still watch what's happening 
inside. Okay. So, so that's true of other systems as well, but very little really nice. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, that's all, all these details you wouldn't know unless you actually tried to get the, the nuts and bolts of it to actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So at what point, I mean, what is your history in terms of, you know, your, your religious outlook? How has that been shaped over time? You know, um, I, hate, I hate to characterize myself as, as, a, as a bad Catholic, but I'm, I'm kind of a bad Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was raised, I was raised Catholic. My, my father and mother were both very, very faithful people and very, very smart people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started out in the faith um, with, with a, not a lot of questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, because I trust my parents, they were smart. Yeah. They 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 believed in this, so why not? Yeah. Um, and it didn't really seem to make much of a difference to me. Of course, in college, <laughs> you, yeah. I went to the University of Chicago, was yeah. thrown in with. You know, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, and then Berkeley, and yeah. then Berkeley. Yeah, a lot of people who disagreed with with that view. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, at that point, I'd already had my Maria Curie, you know, um, epiphany, and so I knew that this was. This is who I was going to be, and and it, it. If I were to define myself, I would define myself first as a scientist. I think it's so it's so absolutely intrinsic to the way I look at the world yeah. that everything has to be based on evidence. It has to be based on logic and reason. It it can't be self contradictory. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is just how how I, my brain works. So yeah. where does Catholicism fit in with that? Yeah. I think a lot of people when they first encounter other other individuals who question their faith or the way they were raised, mm-hmm. and if they have that mindset, if they have an analytic mindset, um, sometimes they, they just cave. Mm-hmm. They cave based on authority. Yeah. A lot of really smart people are telling me that I'm just brainwashed and yeah. this whole religion thing is incompatible with science, and I love science and I want to be a scientist, so that means I have to kind of give up the religion thing. Right. Right, there's at least that. Well, stubbornness and, and stubbornness has its, has its purpose. <laughs> you know, I think I think that um, what that what those kinds of naysayers charged me to do was not not to bow to their authority, but but to question their authority. Mm-hmm. And the more you question the authority of of people who propose alternative worldviews, the more you keep coming back to well, what is actually making the most sense out of the world. Yeah. What what yeah. vision of the world actually accounts for most of the data? Right. And in my experience, it's it's a Christian vision of the world, and in yeah. particular, a Catholic vision of the world that yeah. very much endorses precisely the kind of questioning mind that that promotes scientific investigation. In the yeah. First place. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you can certainly find Catholics who don't live up to that standard, unfortunately, but but they're the ones that do. And yeah. Yeah, and what do you what do you have on the other other sides of the debate? That's that's the question. Yeah, and I think I think many many scientists in particular um, really don't don't question deeply. I mean, there's so <laughs> I often tell this story because I think it puts things in perspective. But yeah. when I was um, a graduate student preparing for my preliminary exams, mm-hmm. um, I'm in the field of developmental neuroscientists. Science it's a relatively new field, yeah. um, and I wanted. To be on top of things. So I've already mentioned the OCD thing. So in preparation for my right. <laughs> for my prelims, I read every single paper that has ever been published in the entire discipline. Yeah, and it was three hundred and eighty six papers. Or, yeah, I remember it made a stack of about you know, four and a half feet on the floor. Yeah, of my, yeah, uh, you, were, you were reading them on PDFs. So and that I I read everything that had ever been published. Yes. in the field. <laughs> so today, you yeah. know, three hundred papers a month yeah. come out. 
in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, oh, I, yeah. if I tried, if I read twenty four seven and did nothing else, you couldn't possibly yeah. stay on top of it. Yeah. And so, as a consequence, inevitably, people get narrower and narrower. Oh yeah. They yes. they yeah. focus down on some very very little slim size because you just can't. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And as a consequence, yeah. many scientists feel very smart. They feel very analytic, and they truly are. Within their narrow, narrow subfield. Yes. Do they think about how? What was the origin of the universe? Yeah. If there's a causal chain for everything, what's the first cause? What, yeah. what set all of this in motion? Yeah. How do you explain consciousness, truth? Yeah. Based yeah. on yeah. properties, what are the real differences between humans and, and non-human primates or other mammalian species? Yeah. Yeah. All of these are really critical questions. To the conclusion that everything can be explained by reductionist means, and that there is no need for a god, yeah. but, but do does the average scientist spend a whole lot of time contemplating these questions? Almost not. <laughs> yeah, almost I mean, because they have no time. There is that too. Yeah, I mean that's that side of it, but it's it's. I mean, it is a deficiency in the way we the way we teach science, the way we train scientists. It's it doesn't have to be that way. But that is the way, um, what we drift, drifted into. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to have a, a capstone experience in my own undergrad, where we actually looked at philosophy of science. We read some Popper, we read some Kuhn, um, we looked at the history of geology as a discipline in its own, you know, its own recent history. Which at that time, people who were still very much active had lived through the plate tectonics revolution. Oh. Wait, all these ideas we had about how mountains were built are wrong. <laughs> They're actually quite wrong. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that, that I think that also has put some humility in the field in a certain sense. Like, oh, which is which is wearing off now, as it inevitably has to. But um, yeah, but but not everyone gets that by any stretch. They don't, and I think I think particularly in biology, there's there's such an intoxication with success. Yeah. We've, we've had so much phenomenal success in understanding the basic underlying mechanisms of life yeah. and applying it to human disease and to um, drug design and to all of the things that have been so so amazingly powerful in the last 20, 30 years of science mm-hmm. in, within the field of biology. Um, people, people are very confident yes. that, 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 they, <laughs> that they are, that they're on top of their game, that, that they can answer all the other questions and all the questions that, you know, this weak and small-minded people ponder as they think their guns and their Bibles. Um, right. We don't really have to think about We don't have to worry about that. Because, no. you know, we're changing the world here and, mm-hmm. you know, making progress and redefining the species and curing disease. And yeah. What yeah. more do we need to do? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, for the people that we choose to let into the uh, sphere of people whose problems we care to solve, yeah. as opposed to the people we're willing to use in order to solve the actual problems. But, ah, uh, yeah. So, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording. <laughs> what has been, what has been your experience as being, you know, someone, someone with this background and then, and then making your way through the academy and the larger political world that's connected to it? I mean, Obviously, you're you're here to be awarded partly because people believe that you took a very courageous stand against people and, and have taken a lot of bullets. Yeah, you know, I I, I suppose I have. I I tend to not think of it in those terms. I mm-hmm. think I think at every step, 
where I've exposed myself to the ridicule of my profession and the inevitable consequences of, of that ridicule. Yeah. Um, it's always been for a reason, and the reason yeah. always had to do with uh, with upholding the truth. I mean, the main the main event that got me started in in public advocacy and public education, uh, which is definitely the area in which I've taken the most where I've earned the name Pariah in the eyes of my colleagues. Right. Uh, is, right. Um, I'll start it because uh, back in, in uh, 2000, I had some really uh, strong results on uh, the topic of neural regeneration, of adult regeneration. And mm-hmm. I'm not a physician, I'm a PhD scientist. Yeah. Uh, but the NIH picked up this result and, and ended up getting it to the popular press. And suddenly, from all over the world, I, I started getting phone calls and emails from spinal injury individuals who mm-hmm. wanted to know if my results were going to get them out of the wheelchair. Yeah. I have, at that time, did not appreciate that I have come to appreciate that I still work with this community of patients, how mm-hmm. very, very aggressive they are and um, very well educated you know, and mm-hmm. really self advocates, you know, go out and try to find, find answers to their problems. Yeah. So um, I developed kind of a standard. Uh, Reply, you know, this is basic research. I'm very optimistic that it may someday translate into, and that satisfied most people. Until I truly had a an event that changed changed my life and put me on a very different course of action. And you'll have to apologize if I if I cry about this because I often do. Um, I got a phone call from a young man whose wife and five children had been hit by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. and. His wife and the three older kids died at the scene of the accident, and the two little babies who were both under the age of five were um, high level cerebral. That played it upon the quadriplegic. Yeah. And he's crying on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just begging me, you know, I'll do anything, I'll give you my own body. Mm-hmm. You've got to do something for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm crying, I had no idea what to say to this man. And, uh, at some point, I asked him some neutral question about getting support or, you know, trying, you know, who was he, has he talked with? And he goes into a complete diatribe against George Bush mm-hmm. because his senator had contacted him mm-hmm. and um, was trying to convince him to bring the girls to Washington to testify before Congress um, about stem cell research. Mm-hmm. And his senator had told him that there was a cure that was mm-hmm. being blocked by George Bush's policies um, okay. stem cell research okay and the rage just blind frustrated rage of this man yeah. I remember hitting him with a cold of and looking literally at the phone yeah and going nobody nobody who said that as much as this person should be used like this yeah it should be used as a political pawn yeah because that's all it is yeah you know the yeah. senator knows that that if he brings these poor wheelchair-bound babies to, to Washington, that yeah. they're going to get political support for yeah. a research agenda that, that he's simply willing to lie about. Yeah. And so I decided right then and there, somebody has to tell these people the truth. You know, it has yeah. to be willing to spend time and effort and develop a rapport and mm-hmm. talk with people about what we really do know. Mm-hmm. And so we talked for two hours, and I think it was the hardest conversation I've ever had. I'm sure. And in the end, he thanked me. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, it was a very sobering realization. I mean, I had to tell him that there is no cure and nobody is hiding this from me. This is yeah. an incredibly complex area of research. Um, it's moving very, very slowly. Yeah. Um, stem cells could potentially have some benefit here, but 
in actuality, it wouldn't be in my top pick of the top 500 things that could be helped by stem cells. Right. Um, the girls are going to be in wheelchair. Yeah. One time. And your job is to try to help them have the full side they can have. Yeah. Because there is no secret cure. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it, I, I set out from that point forward, <laughs> yeah. trying to get the word out and trying to yeah. be an advocate for patience and for knowledge and for factual information. Yeah. Um, I think some of the common signs is we start believing our own press releases. Right. And people people really have, the scientific community has such optimism mm-hmm. for for the power to cure, the power to move forward, that yeah. we just unfetter science and put the least number of restrictions on people. Right. Right. We're going to have the highest benefit. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between saying that and having the data support it. Right. Right. So, so I, that's what I've tried to do. And I do it a lot. <laughs> I yeah. fly all over the world and talk to people about what we know, what we don't know, what yeah. we're unlikely to ever know, um, yeah. and why. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a tall order. Oh, well, you know, we all have, we, we all do our part in some way, but I think the more you do it, the easier it gets. Either you, oh, yeah. you find, you find ways of speaking to people that, that bring with them and that help them wrap their heads around these very, very complex topics mm-hmm. in a manner where they can, they can assume the responsibilities of responsible citizenship. You know, they can, they can influence the political process in an appropriate way without relying on scientists who have conflicts of interest and a vested, a vested interest in having things come out in a particular way. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing. Yeah, I mean, when, once you get how people actually live their lives involved in it, then the, the stakes go up so much, and it becomes so much harder to do science, which demands, you know, that willingness to say, you know, what I might be wrong about this. <laughs> that's very true, <laughs> especially when you've invested so much of your life and, yeah. and uh, so much, so much uh, public money, and yeah. you know, the, the effort of your trainees and everyone else. And yeah, yeah, being willing to accept no for an answer is a tough, a tough yeah. job. <laughs> yeah. 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 If I just get a few more data points and I try an- another couple of statistical analyses, maybe I'll get something that makes it look like it's a success. That's yeah, a, <laughs> it's a temptation. That's, that's a difficult temptation to turn down. Where does that whole world of stem cell research stand now? Are you finding yourself, uh, uh, saying uh, this is possible uh, more often now, or are expectations even rising so that you have to still say no uh, a lot of times? <laughs> you know, I think um, one of the things that made stem cells kind of a low-hanging fruit for, for criticism of the outrageous scientific optimism that we're going to cure everything from baldness to illness was the fact that there were such obvious long-standing scientific problems associated with the application of stem cell research to, to patients. And the whole nature of serious long-standing scientific problems is that they're serious. Right. And long-standing. <laughs> and someone would have fixed them if they were that easy and to fix. If they were easy to fix, yeah, yeah. I mean, they would have been fixed. And very often it's because the, the problems are not just complex. 
Right, but they are linked to the intrinsic nature of the cells themselves. So one of the problems I pointed out in my first critique of stem cells being the panacea for all human disease was um, the reason stem cells are scientifically interesting um, is that they have the capability of developing in a wide range of different development pathways. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I take a skin cell from you, it's pretty much restricted to being a skin cell. And mm-hmm. It's hard to, that we have found ways now to maybe do something else. Stem cells are great because they, they can produce all the different cells within the body. Um, and yet, this very capability that makes them interesting scientifically also makes them extremely problematic medically because um, one of the ways that evolution has protected the DNA of the cell from um, accumulating random mutations, which would turn it into a cancer cell, is to take all the DNA you're not actively accessing. So if you're a liver cell, you really don't need all those genes to control heart function or skin function or brain function. And so this is a simplification, but but a, a useful way of thinking about it. So you kind of pack all of that DNA up in, in a chromatin structure that is much more resistant to um, mechanical and chemical insult. Mm-hmm. Uh, by essentially inactivating so, so that's what makes cells stable um, enough to persist without accumulating mutations that will turn them into cancer cells. Right. But if we don't do that, mm-hmm. if we are the kind of pluripotent stem cell that everyone is very fascinated with as a biological mm-hmm. um, question, that cell is intrinsically prone to accumulating mutations and yeah. becoming a cancer cell. This has been shown mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of times that inevitably these cells always always undergo some kind of mm-hmm. chemical mutagenesis, structural mutagenesis, they turn into cancer cells very, very readily and wow. very reliably. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, you might remember Richard Nixon. You're old, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, and you remember that, you know, back in 1971, he started the war on cancer in his day. That's right. National Cancer Institute, okay? And yeah. since then, we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. You know, countless crews of brilliant scientists and physicians have been devoted to yeah. to addressing this problem of, of cancer, you know, oncogenesis, how do, how do cells turn into cancer cells? And it's not like we've made no progress, but if you look at the death rates from cancer yeah. over the last 50 years, they have, smoking does have declined dramatically, or because people cease from smoking, right. but, but cancer deaths have, you know, we barely need a notch. Wow. And it's because it's a tough problem to fix. So, honestly, given that we've made such limited progress on these questions since I initially made my, my predictions that we weren't going to progress rapidly towards application of stem cells to medical right. conditions, you know, nothing has changed. I should like, change my middle name to Nostradamus, but, <laughs> <laughs> but all the predictions I made back in 2001, 2002 have really up, been upheld precisely because they weren't just frivolous right. naysayer yeah. objections. No. They were things like, these are foreign cells, they're going to be rejected by the immune system, we've known about immune rejection for many, many decades, yeah. we've made some progress, but it's still an enormous problem and people still die from incompatible tissue transplant. Yeah. Uh, this oncogenic transformation thing, which is very, very well established. The other thing that's challenging about stem cells is even when they're not cancer, they are tumor-forming. 
In fact, that's the gold standard for, for stem cell biology. If you develop a cell line and you imagine it to be a stem cell line, a perfect stem cell line, the gold standard test is you inject it into an immune compromised mouse and you wait for the mouse to die because it has tumors all over its body right. that, are, yeah. that are formed from the stem cells. Yeah. And that and the tumors contain derivatives of all the major embryonic lines. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you know you, you've got a stem cell. Yep. We were mm-hmm. successful. Yeah, we were successful. So awesome. let's put those into humans. Yeah. Sounds brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. You know, so, so these, yeah. Are, these are, you know, so oncogenicity, the tumorigenicity, the, the immune incompatibility, and the final mm-hmm. one is you could fix most of these if we could control the development of these cells mm-hmm. um, into more mature derivatives. So if, if we, you are a patient who has a heart problem, we want to create heart cells for you. If I could start with stem cells and drive them up to heart, heart mature heart cells that mm-hmm. we could use for transplant or treatment, um, then they would no longer have these problems. They wouldn't make tumors. They wouldn't be prone to, to um, uh, tumors or whatever you call it. Right. And if and and if we took the cells from you, or we, we could, or if we had a big enough bank of cells, we could perhaps address the immune problem. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've been working on stem cells. The first mouse um, embryonic stem cells were isolated in you know more than thirty-five years ago, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Driving them into mature states is very, very challenging. I mean, it's it's not again not a simple problem that we're just going to fix. Give it throw a few million dollars at it, and oh, yeah. it'll be something we'll, we'll figure out. So all 10, those problems, 10, 20 doctoral students will get yeah, this yeah, knocked no out. Yeah, yeah, we'll knock this right out. You know, so it's not that it's not an interesting area of research. It's I think it's a fabulous area of research. Mm-hmm. I work on stem cells. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I'm yeah. not opposed to stem cell biology, yeah. but um, but it's but transitioning. Basic research into into medical applications is um, is mm-hmm. faces many significant problems, mm-hmm. and yeah. those problems still stand. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, is there still that polemic between um, uh, embryonic stem cells and the and my, uh, as a, as a lay person, I'm not sure uh, is that the more important uh, stem cells? Yeah. Uh, embryonic stem cells versus what people would generally just call adult stem cells, right. like more right. tissue yeah. specific. Exactly. So that has that that dynamic has has really really declined because um, over the last 10, 15 years, the clinical applications of, of stem cells derived from mature tissues, so called adult stem cells, mm-hmm. have have proven to be really really strong. I mean, they're 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 treatments. They're not cures. You know, we don't we don't have magic here, right. but we do have. Thousands of clinical trials involving um, adult stem adult cells, cells. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that are showing benefit to patients. Um, and so, I, I think uh, the other big new player in the field, of course, is the reprogrammed cells that mm-hmm. Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for. Uh-huh. Those um, those cells have um, proven to be wildly popular among scientists because they're easy to make. Um, they sidestep all the ethical issues. We don't have to worry about getting eggs. We don't have to worry about getting yeah. embryos and then destroying those embryos. Yeah. Um, but they're a lot simpler. <laughs> Honestly, we don't yeah. have to have a relationship with a yeah. with a fertility clinic who's going to have spares. And, and, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, so, so um, definitely that has been a game changer in, yeah. in the field as well. So, uh, what was that 
specific, the specific name of that last type of stem cell? The induced pluripotent stem cells. Induced or pluripotent, yeah. 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 yeah, amazing, amazing. One of the most important scientific findings in the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah, and how long has that? It seems to me like there's been a few years since that was first. 2007 was the first demonstration okay. in animals, okay. and 2008, I think, or six, seven, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Animals, and then human, human tissue, um, and human animal in 2012. Yeah. yeah, I thought it. I thought it had been a minute. So yeah, yeah and that is that's a beautiful thing. So if we, so I'm staring at Bill, and Bill is. Bill is also this sort of bad influence on me. At some point during your discussion of the, the problems in dealing with embryonic stem cells, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to date myself, not quite back to Richard Nixon, but <laughs> I've spent way too much time watching the 80s Star Trek movies. And so there is a, this parallel between, if you remember, the, the plot of Star Trek 2 and 3 revolves around Genesis. this Genesis effect. Yeah. Yes, the Genesis planet. So Kirk's old girlfriend is you know, is creating this thing that will, you know, terraform, you know, this planet and create life. And then they realize that the planet in Star Trek, they realize the planet they've made is unstable. And they're asking Kirk's, I guess, son, which is, yeah, it's his little son as if we care about these things in the enlightened 23rd century, I'm sure. Um, and he's like, well, we were using proto matter and it's, and, Somebody, Spock, not Spock, because Spock is dead. Uh, we're, we're bringing Spock back. Um, I think McCoy or somebody says, that's totally, you know, that's that's against uh, Federation regulations. It's too unstable to work with. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> we, wanted, we wanted to see if we could do it. Yeah. We wanted to see if we could do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, you know, it happens to create planets that self-destruct yeah. and, uh, you know, consume uh, Christopher Lloyd when they go, which is, which is a tragedy, <laughs> terrible tragedy. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we've talked about these terms and of, I was, uh, you know, doing a little bit of reading, not as much as I would like to, um, of some of your work before, uh, putting this together. So, so we've, we've used the word, I believe, pluripotent already. And you, and you have used the words totipotent and plenipotent in print as well. What, if we could break down what the definition of just those three terms are. They're sort of... Yeah, I, I did coin a new term, which I, I did with great trepidation, but I did it precisely to try to get around uh, an incredible misunderstanding in the public and a misuse of terminology by by the scientific literature. Yeah. So, totipotent is uh, a term that means having all powers, yeah. able to do everything. Yeah. And um, the scientific literature uses that term in two distinct ways. Mm-hmm. The first one is... Uh, the ability to make literally all of the cell types that, that come from that one cell embryo. So this would include mm-hmm. all of the cells of the embryonic organs of the placenta and embryonic mm-hmm. membranes, as well as all of the tissues and cell types that exist in the mature body. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that, you are totally potent. You, have, you are the kind of cell that has the ability to make everything. So the zygote is totally potent. The zygote Almost is the gold well, standard. The zygote is totally potent, but so are many stem cells in this limited sense, in the ability to make all of the cell types of the body. Mm-hmm. So in mouse, for example, stem cells taken from embryos are pretty much restricted to making just the cells of the mature body. So they don't make the cells of the placenta, for example. Right. They've already... But human embryonic stem cells actually have the capability of making everything. So okay. they're totally potent in that simple sense, the ability to produce all of the cell types that, that are mm-hmm. normal human cell types. Mm-hmm. 
The stricter sense of totipotent is um, the term as it would apply to a one-celled embryo. So yeah. a cell that has not only the ability to make all of the cell types of the body, but in to fact, organize it's going them. to, yeah. And yeah, in, in a them. coherent, rational sequence that allows for, not can't say rational, but in a, in a coherent sequence that allows for the ordered production of, cell, of increasingly mature states of human development. Right. So if you have that kind of totipotency, so if I take stem cells, for example, and I aggregate them all together, they can and do produce all the cells of the body in a chaotic mass like a tumor. But an embryo will produce all the cells of the body in an ordered developmental sequence Mm -hmm. that that progressively moves towards more mature states of of the human form. So that kind of totipotency is the kind of totipotency that really is yeah. Do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but pluripotent, in contrast, refers to cells like the, I just described the mouse embryonic stem cells. So cells that have the capability of producing all of the cell types found in the mature body, but not all of the cell types found, okay. um, in in human development. So the cells of the placenta and embryonic mm-hmm. structures that are transient. So pluripotent is able to make all the cells of the body. Totipotent, in the strict sense, is is to be an embryo, is to make all those make an body entire, and yeah. also organize them yeah. in, a, in a coherent body plan. And we needed something to replace that simpler sense of totipotent, yeah. which, which uh, is confusing when people use it because people will read yeah. that and say, oh, they've made embryos. And what they've really done is make a tumor that has this yeah. broader development capability of producing all the cells that, yeah. that are possible to be produced. Yeah. So that would be plenty of work. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That is yeah, a, whole, a whole world of, you know, when I early on decided to go up the opposite direction of biology, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm leaving that behind. Or not. <laughs> so, and that does bring up the question, which I, which I believe you've addressed at length in different uh, uh, places. At what point does a, because of course there's the phenomenon of twinning, of identical yes. twinning. At what point does the zygote, at how many divisions down does a human, as opposed to a mouse or a turtle or a chick or whatever, um, you know, how many divisions down does it lose the ability to be fully totipotent in that sense? Yeah, this is a really, really important question. In fact, I have a book in press at the University of Maine Press called there Untangling Twinning. There you <laughs> that, go. That addresses um, the, both the philosophical and the biological issues mm-hmm. associated with twinning uh, in, in great detail. So, yeah. the... The short answer to your question is proving a cell is totipotent, it takes a very strict scientific test. You need to isolate that cell yeah. from all other contributing sources of information, mm-hmm. and then you assess what its capabilities are uh, independent of, of any other cell type within the embryo. Mm-hmm. Now, the hard thing about that experiment is that cells don't like to be isolated, and it's very no. hard to do it in a manner that, that you don't get the negative finding of the cell dies, or it doesn't do anything, it just sits there. So when that happens, you don't really know what it's supposed to do, because the only way you can assess it is if you get a positive finding. Right, right. So with that as a caveat to to looking at um, the strict question of totipotency, the ability to not only produce but to organize all of the cell types in the body, there appear to be species-specific differences mm-hmm. in how long that capability is preserved. So uh, in mice... Um, I think the weight of the data is that the first two cells produced from the zygote mm-hmm. 
if separated, can't go on to produce independent little twin mice. Mm-hmm. But after that, you lose the ability mm-hmm. to do that. And some species, for example, cattle, for some reason, seem to preserve totipotency up to, say, the four cell stage. Okay. Uh, pretty routinely. So people clone cattle fairly fairly frequently by blastomer separation, by separation of the early first four cells of the embryo. Okay. And each of them can routinely go on to make a little baby cow. Yeah. Uh, progress to the calf stage. stage right. <laughs> um, there's one unreplicated report in, in a particular species of pigs that asserted, that I would just call this an assertion because it's right. never been shown by anyone else, that in that species you can preserve totipotency up to the eight cell stage. So okay. each of the first eight cells, if separated, could, could potentially produce an embryo. Okay. But I think in the vast majority of mammals, the two cell stage is about as far as you can go. Okay. I think cattle's are really the exception. I think this one reported things is probably spurious. Correct. Yeah. Um, happens sometimes. It does happen. Or it was an almost finding that nobody's been able to replicate right. since then. Right. Um, yeah. So, so, but that's not the only way that twinning can happen. Mm-hmm. And there's fraternal twinning. There's fraternal twinning where you have two independent embryos and they just so happen to coexist in yes. the uterus of the same They have to be mates. But, yes. mates. <laughs> but, but there's also, um, it's, it's, uh, you can, the, the capacity to develop as an entire embryo, as a whole, as a whole, unified whole, um, can exist in a multicellular embryo. Um, as a whole, no one cell, if you took it out, could, mm-hmm. could restart the whole process of development all over again. Right. But the entity as a whole mm-hmm. has that capacity. So, um, and there's very good experimental evidence and some some evidence from fertility clinic work that, that splitting an embryo much, much later, an embryo that contains hundreds of cells, mm-hmm. uh, will cause each of the halves to uh, heal and go on mm-hmm. in development to make, to make twins, identical twins. Yeah. So that kind of splitting, uh, that isn't separation of the earliest cells, but an actual division of the embryo in half, uh, yeah. that can occur up to about 14 days of human development. Okay. So we have some evidence that happens naturally as well as, mm-hmm. or at least we have no reason to believe it doesn't happen both at the well, two-cell stage we as have well as... Good at, we have reason to believe that it never happens at the two-cell stage, although okay. experimentally we can do this. Okay. Um but all human mammal in the wild identical in the twins. Wild, <laughs> identical twins. I'm going to argue. I argue in the book I, uh-huh. um, that I think the vast majority, if not all, mm-hmm. um, identical twinning in humans in the wild, so to speak, in uh-huh. natural uh, situations, occurs at uh, at the blastocyst stage, which is a, a stage where you have many hundreds of cells in the embryo. Yeah. It looks kind of like a hollow ball. Yeah. Uh, like because it has both the uh, the wall of the placenta that's forming as well as the... As the inner cells that are going to go on to produce the postnatal body. Yeah. So all of that early development happens inside a, a protein coat known as the zonopalooza. It's a very rubbery, tough coat that protects mm-hmm. the embryo and the egg. The egg would ovulate, and then the early embryo as it's traveling down through the forking tubes to the uterus. Mm-hmm. But in order for it to implant... Um, you have to escape from this rubbery coat because okay. the outer cells... And that rubbery out. coat is also generated by the embryo. The rubbery coat is actually generated by the egg as it's yeah. developing. So it's a structure okay. surrounding the egg. Oh, is that different from the corpus luteum? 
<laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, there's so many things. So All many this things. Technology, yeah. yes, yes, the curse of the is a, is a structure within the ovary. The ovary yeah. Part of um, the the organization surrounding the maturing egg called the follicle. Right. And right. so the cells of the follicle that remain in the ovary after ovulation are the coprosluteum. Yeah. But the pellucida yeah. is this proteinaceous coat. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very simple. It consists of three proteins created with all Zonoclusa 1, Zonoclusa 2, and Zonoclusa 3. <laughs> but they make, yeah. they make a nice, uh, yeah. tough, protective coat for the egg. The sperm actually have to penetrate through the zona in order to get to the surface of the egg to um, have fertilization happen. Um, and then all of early development happens within the zona. Um, but in order for the embryo to implant, the outer cells um, actually of the, of the embryo actually mediate implantation. And they have to escape from this covering, mm-hmm. or they can't yeah. interact with the uterus. Yeah. So this happens through a process called hatching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually, I have some great movies of this. It's just unbelievable. It really does look like the the embryo secretes some enzymes that poke, uh, weaken the zona in one region. It's usually a small tear, and then this entire structure will squeeze out of mm. the little eggshell. Yeah. Um, and People have observed twinning happening at that exact point. That would be a point where you would expect that to happen. Two yeah. little bubbles yeah. instead of one little bubble. Yeah. And so long as each of them inherits some of the cells in the inner cell, has you get identical twins. But are there times when it's, it divides in a less fortunate manner and then you simply unfortunately visit? One that just has some cells missing, that they're not sufficiently large enough group of cells to want to yeah. carry on the development on their own and regenerate. Oh, that gets complicated really fast. Which, but I think yeah. part of the confusion about twinning is, is the belief that twinning happens at the T-cell stage. And yeah. we can do this in the laboratory. People do it routinely. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it has never actually been observed. Okay. Um, yeah. in, in Despite the mm-hmm. fact that in IVF situations, we have daily observations of embryos. Many, many Hundreds yeah. of thousands of embryos have been lost over many, many years, yeah. and no one has ever reported this happening. Nobody has seen that happen. Okay. Even though the actual rate of twinning in IVF situations is highly elevated compared to natural. It, it's natural what? Twinning. It's higher? It's quite, quite a bit higher. Quite a bit higher, yeah. yeah. So, so in that situation, which no one should be exposed to, but that's the world we live in. <laughs> um, so that, that whole... And I forget the name of, of it already, but the, that protein coat is present yeah. as well, yes. and that's growing in the dish or what yes. have you. And yeah, so that that has to swell, and then at some point that gets implanted, and this whole tearing process could also happen. I mean, there would yes. there would be a more or less normal rate of that style of twinning. Well, I mean, that would be no. You're saying it's higher, yeah, exactly and that's when higher. and that's when it would happen. Yeah, and, and some of the thinking about this from animal models is that the longer uh, period of time you have the embryos in culture, the, the tougher that protein coat gets. Yeah. And so the likelihood that, that you're going to have a really constricted aperture through which the pollen mm-hmm. has to escape yeah. would, would potentially increase the likelihood yeah. of training. Yeah. The adventures that we all have to go through without, you know, before we have any chance to remember any of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've often been asked how uh, you know my experience as a scientist was, uh, you know, has given me a better appreciation for for humans and for human life. And you know, honestly, 
uh, it wasn't until I was pregnant, and I really started thinking about yeah. what I knew about embryology in a practical yeah. sense and right. in a personal sense yes. that, that I became completely flabbergasted that anybody ever survives to maturity. Right? Wow, right? <laughs> just, how could this ever work? How does this, it's all got to go just right. Exactly. And there's so many variables, and they're all having to happen exactly at the same that time, exactly the same way. And, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 It really is. It, it, does, it does give you a sense of awe. Yeah. And without the, question. the miraculous nature of, of, yeah. of human development that, that yeah. we ever get out here more or less intact with five fingers and five toes. Right. Yeah. Given that whole realm of awe and wonderment and amazing mm-hmm. unlimited potential for different things to happen at that stage of life, I have to just think as a, as a, a Catholic layperson that, you know, in the Catholic imagination, it seems so viscerally sad and disturbing that this wonderland, in a sense, um, is so easily dismissed as a compensate. Yeah. No, no, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was thinking the side of we invade it and manipulate it to our own ends so readily, but yeah, that, yeah. that side of it too, yeah. But, yeah, yeah both, of them are, both of them are disturbing and also I find I find uh, that attitude among my colleagues. Um, I don't want to say disingenuous because I honestly think they don't think about it, but but it is it is a distortion of reality and of, of a reality that, that they should know better. Yeah. And it, uh, you spoke early on about that. Uh, what what compelled you early on was the big picture question, mm-hmm. and what you're what you've been dis- discussing is a lot of big, big picture, big possibility kinds of questions. And presumably, you're not alone among these biologists. They, too, were drawn in by big questions, big picture at some point in their early lives. And yet, it falls by the wayside and... It's it, that too is just really sad. It seems to be. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever done a sort of a sociology study of, of what draws people to science because I'm not sure I would endorse the concept that most scientists are drawn to it by big picture questions. Really? At least not in biology. Well, mm-hmm. I think in biology, the vast majority of people who are drawn to to it are people who you know took their mother's toaster apart when they were eight years old and mm-hmm. <laughs> confident that they could put it back together, but except for that last. Spring, spring or something. Just, yeah, yeah, it didn't quite fit. Or the, or the yeah. thing that they crossed it and shorted it and uh, yeah. sort of got the, <laughs> yeah, got the hot tart on fire. you had a toaster experience in your past. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a toaster per se, but yeah. Uh, yeah, some things of that nature. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, so I think, I think biologists in particular are not are not people who spend a lot of time contemplating the big pictures. They're not like cosmologists or physicists or right. maybe geologists who have this huge... The, you, there there are different time. branches, yeah. I mean, the people who go into oil and gas are, you know, they have an end and a means to that end, mm-hmm. as opposed to the people who study the history of the planet as a whole. Yeah. You know, or planets now, multiple planets as a whole. You yeah. know, that's, that is, those are, yeah, fairly big picture questions. Yes, I think, I think that in... in my experience with biology across across many different um, organisms and different orientations on more or less pertaining to medicine or to basic science, the really unifying thing is is the tinkering mentality. I want to be able to mm-hmm. take things apart. I want to put them back together in cool ways. Mm-hmm. I just want to see if I can do it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, if I can take that twister apart and put yeah. it back together. And I'll just again, I love to tell stories. This, this is how I 
Better than that, I think. We're doing a podcast, <laughs> so this is exactly when you should exercise that. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. So I had a I had a, a postdoctoral advisor who was a fabulous fly geneticist um, at Berkeley. Uh, you know, really just the kind of mind that you could just stand in awe of. I mean, he he would lecture, you know, and pose some biological question. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered how gene X interacts with gene Y? Mm-hmm. You know, how would you test that? Right. And, and then he would just off the top of his head. Describe these incredibly complicated genetic processes. Everybody's frantically taking notes, and I'd go home mm-hmm. and, like, you know, an hour later, work out. Yeah, okay, yeah. I guess that Unpack. actually would yeah. do what he said it would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he was so experienced. The so, logic of so yeah. so logically, he could just do these things off the top of his head. But um, and amazingly, uh, as many scientists are, that confident individual. <laughs> I remember yeah. Yeah. more than once he after going through one of these very very complicated um, genetic processes to test a particular idea. He would pause dramatically, put his hand on his hip, uh-huh. and his other hand on his chin, and, yeah. and say quite smugly, "So I made that fly. <laughs> I yeah. made that fly." And yeah. the fascinating thing is that that yeah. attitude. No, I didn't test the hypothesis. No. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't discover the information. No, I had an idea in my head, mm. and I manifested it. Yeah. yeah, I made yeah. the fly. <laughs> right? Yeah, that that attitude, the attitude, it's tinkering writ large. It's the ability yeah. to have an idea yeah. and to make it happen, not yeah. to discover what's in yeah. nature, but to make the fly yourself. Yes, it's not yeah. discovery. It's, yeah. it's a create a creatorship. Uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, would it be hyperbolic to call it a kind of God complex? <laughs> it sure sounds like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole... Well, but you know, that that kind of power, that, that it is so intoxicating. Yeah. I mean, people who love, who yeah. love the experimental side of science, who, you know, biologists I know, myself included, you know, would wake up in the middle of the night and look at the clock and go, okay. The experiment's been running for three, you know, four and a half hours. If I ran into the lab right now, it would be gone enough so I could tell if it worked or not. And yeah. They would get up, get on their bicycles, drive to the lab at yeah. <laughs> three in the morning. Because, yeah. because yeah. when it works, it's such yeah. an incredibly powerful yeah. Oh, yeah. thing of, you know, you you had an idea and you made that fly. You made it happen. In reality, it mm-hmm. isn't. And it almost is completely stripped of any sense of discovery. There's there's almost no wonderment about it. It was that you were clever enough to make it happen. Mm. It's sad to lose that sense of wonder. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, but, it's yeah. sad and sort of contrary to the scientific enterprise. Yeah. 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 We consult reality and see what it has to say. Well, I mean, that's, and that's, and of course, there's the whole, you know, there's both a philosophic and a spiritual side of you were able to make this fly because there were already flies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Everything from the fact that there are things rather than nothing all the way down through the existence of laws of physics that allows complex phenomena like this to happen to the construction of a genome where there's already all of these pieces in place and you took some bricks out and slid them in different places and something cool happened. And that's great. 
But <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. it is, and I uh, one of the reasons I tell the story is because of the obvious absurdity of that claim. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would often push back and go, "Oh, so you know, what chemicals did you start with?" <laughs> right. When you made the fly, yeah, I would, I would look to do that myself sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'd make a really big one so I could like fly to work out. You know? There you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna buy some coal and I'm gonna purify it. And I'm gonna get the carbon and hydrogen out of it and I'm gonna make a fly. That's Let's start from there. Right. Yeah. right. And and it's odd because again they're so poor. There's such a there's so such a complete lack of any kind of philosophical training for the vast majority of scientists. They just yeah. don't talk these things. Yeah. But but it struck me in, in your litany of everything from the Big Bang all the way up through to the existence of the genome. Yeah. I would say right before that, you still have to have the existence of the soul. You have to have no. you have to have a substantial form for any living thing yeah. that is kind of the gravitational forces towards which all of those biological processes are working. Um, and that hold them together as a coherent thing. So that when you take out a few genes, you know, sometimes you kill a fly, but you rarely cause it to break down into carbon. Yeah. 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 It hasn't, hasn't gone all the way back that far. Yeah. That is, fa- I mean, that's fascinating to me. And I don't know enough Aristotelian and Thomistic philosophy to do this yet. Maybe I'll be crazy enough to, you know, go off in that direction. Um, but, you know, old Aristotle and his form and matter idea. Yeah. It actually, it seems to me there are a lot of ways it works better with modern science than it did when you were trying to say, well, it's a table. What's the form of a table? Well, you know, it's kind of <laughs> has to be sort of like this. Whereas what's the form of an electron? Yeah. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty precise. Yeah. What's the form of a uh, Drosophila melanogaster? Well, you know, there's, there's, I mean, the, the, the DNA, the genome is, is, is a fairly precise set of rules. I mean, it's not that hard, but I mean, then that would be only part of the yeah. form. Well, it's, but, a, it's a it's a very these are so so prior to this book that's coming out on twenty, I wrote a book with my brother Samuel, um, kind of, okay. who is um, a philosopher, mm-hmm. and uh, to my knowledge, this is one of the few books that has really attempted to, to bring to bear onto the question of anything in our yeah. case, the embryo, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a rigorous philosophical analysis and a rigorous biological analysis, mm-hmm. and um. The interesting backstory to this book is that the hardest part of writing it were, were the three or four years where we just had to fight endlessly over terminology. Like, what yeah. do you even mean when you say this? Right? Yeah. You know? And, and that's one both. of the most generous things you can do is to put the result of that argument out there for other people not to have, to well, we were, have the we whole were argument. We convicted that we were talking about the same world. And if you're yeah. talking about the same world, you have to develop a common vocabulary that allows yeah. you to talk about it intelligently yeah. and a common shared set of, of uh, understandings. Yeah. Uh, but as a result, when when we had finally worked through mostly an education on my part, you know, learning biology is relatively simple, but wrapping your head around <laughs> hylomorphism is... Said, said, the, <laughs> said the biologist. It's yeah. a, oh, yeah, a yeah. much more challenging... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that the what? amount of information you have to acquire to wrap your head around biology is is, is enormous, but, but yeah. the complexity of the ideas is they're all fairly trivial yeah. overall. A very, know, a very large number of relatively small inferences to get right. to where you're going. To get to yeah. which, whereas whereas trying to understand what is what is the form of, of a Drosophila yeah. is is a much much harder thing to do. But uh, we 
I would say the second biggest fight was once we had gotten to the point where I, I could barely hold on to all of this and think about it intelligently, um, I had insisted, well, we have to have a chapter in the book that addresses this yeah. from the perspective of four people like me, people yeah. who never really thought about it this way before. Yeah. And my brother, to my brother, that was just beyond, but everybody knows this. Of course, it's obvious. <laughs> Why do we need to talk about what hylomorphism is? <laughs> the dangers of specialization, <laughs> so, yes. yes. So, so the first chapter in that book is, I think, a great, um, it was it it's reflects um, me, the ignorant scientist, trying to. This is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, endorsed by somebody who has a much more natural sense of, of the relationships between the various components, and mm-hmm. and it it writing that chapter really convinced me that intrinsically all scientists actually are Aristotelian. Mm-hmm. You know, they they look at it that way. Mm-hmm. They're they're Thomists. You know, they have this understanding. Mm-hmm. We just don't know they have it because you right. can't really do science without. An understanding yeah. of, of uh, the, the fact that the subject of your experiment can change and remain the same thing that it was, yeah. despite change. Yeah. Because if we didn't have that, we would never be able to do an experiment. We'd never even be able to interpret our results because every every instant, every every incidence would be its own independent thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. What is the title of that book? That book is called um, Human Embryo, Human Being, uh, a Scientific and Philosophic Analysis. That's right. Yeah. Uh, is that uh, important that uh, very few books like that have been written that attempt to synthesize uh, the philosophical and biological? Yes, I think a lot of people try to do it, but they do it very poorly because they don't go through that three-year process of really <laughs> working right. to try to understand. Right. Or right. work with another person of, of sufficient competency that. So you yeah. have a lot of philosophers who dabble in biology and, and yeah. come up right. with some grand yeah. unifying theory that is completely doesn't yeah. doesn't really contact the truth yeah. on the ground. Well, it doesn't, yes, <laughs> it's completely uncoupled from the facts. Yeah, easy to do. Facts yeah. that, that yeah. you know maybe yeah. are forty years out of date and, and overly simplified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of scientists who you know get old, get tired of writing grants, and suddenly imagine themselves to be philosophers. Hey, I wrote contours. <laughs> right. And right. Picked up, I picked up a few modern, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I Bertrand Russell or right. someone. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm confident, and now yeah. I'm going to speculate away about yeah. you know the meaning of the universe because. You know, I'm old and crotchety, and I know right. I'm smarter than most everybody else I know, and so I, yeah. I should be allowed to do that. But of course, they do it very, very naively and, and yeah. completely uncoupled from any kind of philosophical rigor, or yeah. Yeah. because it's hard. Yeah, you know, it's hard. I, I certainly couldn't have done this on my own. I mean, I, yeah. I, I we had a collaboration, a true collaboration, and it was, it was, I think, very a very um, certainly for me a very productive one, and, and I hope uh, a useful one for everybody else. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. That's yeah, I mean, and and to take that and to, yeah, I mean that is the thing is yeah, there is so like you said, there is so much philosophy out there that sort of attempts to and it's sort of glibly, you know. I, of course, from my own specialty, I can look at things. You know, you know are, are you really defining that? You know, you know, from the perspective of geology and chemistry, that's not necessarily an adequate treatment of that. <laughs> um, yes. um, and that's yeah, and then of course you can you know, believe the other side of you know the scientists who even bother to convince themselves they need to write something about it of yeah gotten on that that opinion of themselves um and that 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 seems but that seems to me completely i mean that would that would be what's required to build that bridge to you know it, it was what we would have to do now 
to capitalize on the philosophy and the science that we have, the way that it was, you know, and you can't replicate it and it would be much more complicated. Thousands of people instead of the several dozen that probably gave us the medieval synthesis in the 13th century. Um, but, but what work could be, I mean, to me, you know, even, even if you are, you know, if you, even if you're just laboring away trying to, okay, how, how am I going to apply this to the question of what is a tectonic plate? <laughs> or or crystals or minerals what you know why what what which what should we define as a mineral species where should we draw those lines should we have all these names maybe even, even just that but that would still be i mean so i use this example you know from earth science if you've seen three tin mines in cornwall you think you know how tin mine you know you think you know how tin deposits work and then you might go to spain and you're like oh you know as it turns out, cassiterite can crystallize in this completely different environment. Huh, that's interesting. I better, I better do some more work and see if there's a common. And then go to Indonesia. And by the time you've got 30 tin mines, you might not be as surprised when you go and see tin mine number 31. Say, oh, okay, this actually is at least like existing patterns. And that I, I don't know that we've, I mean, there, there's a need to go deep and there's a need to go broad. There's also kind of a need to be at that 45 angle and degree angle in between. And I think that's really where there's stuff lacking in terms of, mm. I, I think the philosophical ideas would get a lot more rigorous if we expose them to enough different environments and demanded an actual, like what would work with the facts on the ground and this science and this science and this science. And you would start to see patterns of things that I think we're missing. I agree. It's an idea. Uh, and I think we have this, Throughout the scientific enterprise, as um, someone mentioned earlier, the, the need to, the demands of science to falsify your own hypothesis yeah. is, is a really, really tough thing to wrap your head around. And in practical fact, people tend to shy away from mm -hmm. from looking at evidence that could, that could disqualify their hypothesis. Yeah. And, and that even applies to things uh, that they've never really formulated that good hypothesis on. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody knows. Right, and, and so let's not actually look into the literature and find out if that's true or not, yeah. because I'm comfortable with everybody knows, because yeah. it supports you know whatever vision of the world I want to have and yeah. allows me to to just assume. Yeah. And does that phenomenon in the scientific world have an analog in the political and policy <laughs> world, such that uh, people don't want to? Uh, the that, the, the phenomenon in the scientific world is a subset of the, yeah, the general yeah, human tendency, yeah. the legacy of original sin, whatever you want to call it. Right, <laughs> but it does it, it does seem to help explain the incorrectability of things like people want to debate. Yeah, I think you know. <laughs> Not that we should open up the top, the topic of abortion, but yeah. I think I think many many things contribute to this, including people's unwillingness to to look squarely at the facts, people's willingness to immediately turn uh, a presentation of the facts into an common attack. Yeah, that if you are going to assert that a human embryo is a human person or a human being, um, you're just saying that because right, you know, because you're a Catholic, because you're because you're you're an ideologue, because you're or you're a hater or a shamer or a shamer, and that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so we can we can throw a name at you because you said something that makes it challenging for us to to yeah. maintain the, the position that yeah. we'd like. But that's not all of it. You know, it's not like people wake up in the morning and, you know, suddenly find themselves a pro abortion person. I mean, <laughs> people wake up in the morning and they 
find themselves a person who's who's very very sympathetic to women and wants women's uh, freedom to be optimized and wants uh, to to uh, make a level playing field in the economic world. Yeah. Um, maybe they wake up and find that somebody they know is in a crisis pregnancy and, and doesn't know what to do and is, yeah. is suffering. That's how people wake up. Yeah. And they formulate their views on abortion based on those experiences, not on yeah. the facts. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, and those are different. Well, I mean, not all of those are factual, but you know, the situation of waking up and yes, this person I know is in a crisis pregnancy. Yes. And you know, what are all the societal factors that went into governing why she had a sexual encounter with this person when she doesn't want to be pregnant? What 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 causes that? And we don't want to we don't want to look at that either. Mm. Um, well, it's it's just tough. I think you know the the ongoing debates over complicated topics like this are you know I'm fond of saying you you can't reason people out of a position they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. Yeah. And when people yeah. find themselves supporting a particular position out of, out of emotional yeah. life experiences and out of conviction mm-hmm. and out of out of beliefs that that perhaps they've never really questioned, um, you 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 can't laying out the facts for someone like this doesn't help them. Right? Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. But is there still a real value in having those facts? Oh yeah, laid out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I do my best. I, like I say, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I fly all over the world, and you know, with with uh, for food. We'll talk for food and plane tickets. Food and plane tickets. Yes. Because because it does help people to to have to have the information laid out for them. And on this particular topic, on the, the question of how begins, there's actually a, a relatively simple. And um, uncontroversial answer to it. A lot of the controversy uh, gets manufactured when you move up from the question of when does human life begin to the question of when does that life have value? Mm-hmm. When is it the subject of rights? Yeah. And that's a political question, not a scientific question. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's an ethical and moral question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that's really where the world meets the road. I mean, I think I think that. It's actually been fairly encouraging in the last fifteen years that the that the scientific arguments about this used to be very very shrill. You know, a lot mm. of people asserting there's no consensus in the field and no yeah. one knows and right. fertilization is a process and yeah. development is a continuum and yeah. and yet a lot of that has dropped away and even even you know the the most honest people on both sides are are willing to say yeah sure it's a human being. But, but we deny rights to human beings all the time. And, <laughs> That's true. You know, we do. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, you know, maybe this is a case where, where the rights of the mom trump the rights of the, of the fetus or the embryo. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, that to me is a step forward because that's an honest debate. I mean, yeah. that yeah. is yeah. We put it out on the table. Debate. This is what we're actually doing. Yeah. yeah. We're not, we're not talking about clumps of cells and all the other nonsense that, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's right. just disinformation. Yeah. I mean, it's completely yeah. false. Yeah. Um, we're now actually debating something that, I mean, I still think there's only one clear answer to this question, but, right. but, right. but it yeah. can be debated. Yeah. I mean, we do deny rights to people based on all sorts of criteria. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, of course, and we you know, we deny responsibilities to people because they're not able to absorb them, which I don't know where I'm going with that comment, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, are you hopeful yeah. uh, about uh, resolution? <laughs> no, not necessarily the abortion debate. I don't want to get political either, but uh, these these kinds of things that really are uh, scientifically based, but also with all of the complications that come with human nature, yeah. Yeah. and all of that is is is. Yeah, it sounds like you think we are making some progress, or could make some progress, because there are uh, unrecognized areas of agreement. I think I'm optimistic that in the end um, the battle has already been won. We have the resurrection. Right. And as much as it doesn't feel this way, we are in the end game. You know, we, the forces of darkness will be defeated. Hmm. And we just have to play our part. So maybe my part is I, I like to communicate. I, I have a great love for the human embryo and and for embryology in general and just the magic of what happens. And I have a great respect for the truth and for facts, mm-hmm. for evidence. And I want the debate to be on that level. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ha- and I have seen I have seen it move more so that way. And I think that's a complicated thing. I think I think. Women have become much more sophisticated, uh, largely due to ultrasound. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, people, the whole ball of cells thing is really isn't working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when people can see, yeah. you know, what, what's, what's yeah. inside there and, you know, what it looks yeah. like. And, <laughs> yeah. and people are, you know, they get there. They get there slowly. I'll tell you another story. I had a great... <laughs> I tell the story a lot because unlike the one that makes me want to cry, this one always makes me want to laugh. But, right. Um, I had a uh, an attorney contact me once um, to question whether I would be willing to testify on the topic of fetal pain okay. in a lawsuit against a hospital mm-hmm. for wrongful death, and a component of the lawsuit was was um, suing on behalf of fetus who had been inappropriately aborted. All right. Um. Or so they claim that. Mm-hmm. And so you get better damages if there was pain mm-hmm. and suffering involved, right? Uh, so he wanted to know when, you know, in, in fetal development, you would, you would have a likelihood of, of having an experience of pain. And uh, the attorney was very uncomfortable contacting me. Uh, right. I think uncomfortable with the case in general. Yeah. Um, but spent a long time propping uh, uh, up his, his credentials as a feminist and you know, pro women, and he had he had been an abortion litigator for decades, and yeah. prosecuted dozens of cases. You know, and he has the firm right. conviction that a woman had a right to an abortion, no matter what, at any time, mm-hmm. under all circumstances. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, okay. Do you have so any idea who you're talking to? Doing this case, <laughs> so something changed. What 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 uh-huh. was the change? Was, yeah. Well, I got married, and we got we had a kid, and you know, I saw I saw the ultrasound at 20 weeks. Did you know? Yes, uh, fingers. Twenty <laughs> weeks. I'm like looking at this. Okay, uh-huh. I'm like an embryologist, <laughs> right? Right. And, and besides yeah. that, you're a JD who has spent, you know, by your own uh-huh. admission, a decade uh-huh. and you never bothered, yeah, never once, yeah, to actually look at like a high school textbook in the yeah. development yeah. to know that yeah, they have fingers at twenty weeks. Are you on your mind? Yeah, yeah. Fingers at like yes. you know five yes. weeks. Yeah. <laughs> But it was news to him, you know, and he was an educated person. Oh, yeah. A person who had had ample motivation to look into the facts. Mm -hmm. But what compelled him to finally do it? Yeah. An emotional reason. Right. An emotional reason. Yeah. He had a motivation that 
of curiosity about himself and about his own progeny. Right. And he wanted to know something about it for the first time. And for the first time, it was mm-hmm. decoupled from the assumptions, from the firmly held convictions he had about a woman's right to abortion mm-hmm. at any time. He actually needed the facts. And so that that is where the truth comes out. Mm-hmm. When people recognize they need the facts. Yeah, no. but that there's some uh, uh, room for both the facts and the emotional side, the experiential yeah. side. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, that's uh, maybe that's the real challenge to find that happy even, middle. Even ground. more complex than a philosopher and a scientist writing a book together. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, but wow. it does give one hope that conversations can be held that uh, combine the two. But our culture and everything about, uh, you know, uh, fundraising by groups and mm-hmm. activists and all of yeah. that, they militate against those kinds of more complex conversations. Okay. But we, we, can, we can promote it. We as humans need to spend more time listening and asking questions than lecturing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when, when I encounter people who have very, very different views than I do on this, you know, my first question is, can you help me understand why? Yeah. Why you feel that way about this? Yeah. You know what's what is motivating you, and how aware are you of, of the facts? And did the facts actually change anything? Yeah. You know, if it wasn't about ourselves, yeah. That, I mean, the yeah. Years, really, yeah. Would, yeah. That, would yeah. that make it any That's different? That's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Percent it would. Percent it would. This is actually why, as much as I, I really don't think it's a good argument scientifically, the, the fear of pain question is so compelling for people because yeah. it, it appeals to their sense of empathy and to their sense of emotion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so even if, well, if it's human and it was anesthetized, would you care if it was? No, it's not feeling pain, right? I mean, <laughs> would no. that be would that be right. a problem? I would still yeah. have a problem because of the human part. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I I wouldn't feel good about I don't feel good about capital punishment just because prisoners are anesthetized before they're put to death. Yeah, you know? yeah. I don't feel good yeah. about it because I don't think we should be killing humans. Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, um, but it, if if yeah, it's it's not something that if we have any other option, we should be doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, then we have other options today. It's interesting that the uh, the fetal pain uh, argument uh, tends more toward the emotional side mm-hmm. of the conversation, and the heartbeat argument that's now prominent in some state yeah. I think aims more toward the factual mm-hmm. side. Uh, I think it also. I think they're both. I think the heartbeat argument, because it's so much earlier in development, is trying to counteract the the ball of cells things. Yeah. You know, it's pointing to, as we, we talked earlier, the, the kind of concept of an organism and what is an organism except something that is self-directing its own maturation. Yeah. And the fact that, that one of the earliest physiologic means of, of uh, developing embryo is to have an adequate circulation, so you turn yeah. on heart development really, really early in, in yeah. the embryonic process. Yeah. So by 24, 25 days in human development, you have, you have heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Very so what, heartbeat. what time is implantation? Inclination is about six, seven days. Okay. So in that fairly long span of time in between there, is it really kind of like the mother's blood pressure driving? I mean, I'm starting to... <laughs> what, how, how, do the, how, how do the nutrients, the oxygen, you know, is it simply able to diffuse across the... Uh, 
Um, so you establish a very primitive placental circulation, uh, exchange, mm-hmm. I want to say circulation, an yeah. exchange between the mom and the developing embryo, uh, right away. So right. by, you know, a few days after, even immediately as, as implantation is happening, you start mm-hmm. that process. But mm-hmm. at that stage, the embryo is so tiny, mm-hmm. you know, passive diffusion does a lot. Yeah. So yeah. you don't, you don't really Your surface area to volume ratio yeah, is, is nice and high. Yeah. yeah. Very, very, yeah. very, very favorable. To yeah. So, um, and, and you start developing an actual placental circulation mm-hmm. driven by a very, very primitive, primitive heart, um, in, in the other world mm-hmm. right away because yeah. you, because growth just demands it. You, know, yeah. you yeah. start requiring, you know, a more efficient way of getting oxygen to all the bits and getting all the bad stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of talking. That's that's the beauty of doing this and talking to people in radically different scientific <laughs> subfields. Yes. Yeah. So I of course have the personal story about twinning that my mother's parents were both identical twins. Ah, both and, mom and dad. Yes, her mother and her father were both identical twins, and the other members of the pair also married each other. So my mother's family is this big genetics experiment they conducted oh, during the war. <laughs> Wow. And, and to realize that that is the process that happened to both of them, both pairs of them. Oh, okay. Any other yeah. friends in your family? Um, identical, twins. identical twins on my on my mother's side. I'm not sure. I know I know a pair on my father's side. I mean, like they're second cousins that I just happen to know better than my 300 other second cousins for very random reasons. But mm. um, yeah, not. Uh, I don't, yeah, I'm they, curious they because had there's, there's always been a conventional belief based largely on lack of lack of cases yeah. that there's not a genetic component to identical twinning. Right. And uh, a recent a recent um, scholarly review of medical cases has has presented a few families where there does appear to be a, a genetic to be a, component. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's very controversial at this point. Yeah, so. Yeah. so I'm always on the lookout for yeah, I do not twinning running in families. <laughs> yeah, my, so. my, neither my mother's family, my mother, her siblings, nor her genetic siblings have yeah. you know of their descendants. I'm not aware of any identical twins. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I always think about that, and now I know that it was not my. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I shouldn't uh, blame my high school biology textbook. It probably just didn't say. Yeah. But, uh, but I always just assumed, yeah, the, the two cells just, just split, split apart. apart. No, right. no, it's yeah. much more exciting than that. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it is, if you watch the videos, it's very compelling. Yeah, process. yeah, yeah. But um, there's a lot of evidence that, that um, early, the cells of the early embryo are very, very sticky. And they're they're constrained within this, this protein coat, this yeah. coat that we talked yeah. about. Um, people have directly tested this idea uh, by making, through manipulation, making in mice um, binobular uh, eggs. So mature two two mature eggs inside the same zone believes that, mm-hmm. and then you fertilize them so you get fraternal twins. Um, and what mm-hmm. happens is they make they fuse into a single single twin. A chimera. A chimera. Wow. And in fact, when we make chimeras in the laboratory, we do it exactly that way. We take early embryos dissociate their cells, put mm-hmm. them all back together again, and now you get a single individual coming out of, of those fused early, early mm-hmm. embryonic cells. 
Um, and this actually happens also, you know, in the wild, as you say. Right, right. <laughs> uh, we do get chimeric humans, um, sometimes even paternal, you know, a male and a female twin who, okay. uh, who fuse to produce okay. one chimeric individual who has 50% male cells and 50% female cells. Uh-huh. So that and many other lines of evidence, um, we, and, and the fact that the negative evidence of have never observed twinning at the two cell stage actually happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, all strongly suggest that even if, for some reason, mm-hmm. you know, the first two cells decided they wanted to go off independently of each other and yeah. make their own embryonic trajectories, they would they would be in all because they're confined inside that. In the yeah, they would yeah. they would just the tendency the tendencies toward fusion, the tendencies right. not toward fission, right. and especially yeah. because at at um, about the sixteen cell stage, there's a, a change in the property of the early cells of the embryo that requires them to adhere to each other much more tightly. So this process is called compaction. And you can actually see it happen if you watch Mm -hmm. a movie. You know, you start out with something that looks kind of like a mulberry and then it all just clumps back into a a big clump. Mm -hmm. And the biologic function of this, to make to the logical argument, is Mm -hmm. that um, you establish tight junctions among all of the cells of the early embryo and that allows for unidirectional fluid transport into the inside. Okay. So so now this little clump of cells blows up into into a blastocyst, mm-hmm. you know, sort of this fluid the soccer ball, yeah. and allows for the segregation of cells into those first two developmental pathways, the cells that are on the outside that are going to yeah. contribute to the placenta and the cells on the inside that are going to contribute to the placenta body. Mm-hmm. So that process of compaction almost precludes the possibility of twinning until yeah. you get out of the zona. Yeah. Because yeah. because those cells, even if there were two embryos inside, yeah. once their set of the properties change and they adhere to each other, yeah. they make the same they entity. Would, they would glue back together and be a non chimeric chimera. Again. Right. They would yeah. be an identical chimera. They would, yeah, so, <laughs> we would still have the philosophical questions of what happened yeah. to the two souls and but but I talk about chimeras in my book too. So. There you go. There you go. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure to put both of those, list those in the uh, in the liner notes. Yeah. yeah. And does that form part of some scientific uh, basis uh, uh, for uh, arguments in the political realm that we know of as LGBTQ and multiple genders? Oh, and, uh, <laughs> oh man, I what? think we were not going to talk about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's no, my, okay, there that's are... My there, there's there the biological are. side of, you know, if you have a male-female chimera, how does that manifest in terms of their phenotype once yes. they're... Uh, it depends in part on the ratio of, of cells mm-hmm. that are male and female. Yeah. So... The broader question of is there a natural biological basis for um, people's different kinds of gender identities? Uh, there's a very small population of individuals who are what we call intersex disorders, so people who actually have either uh, genetically uh, compound sexual identities, so they might they might have. Um, translocation of the Y chromosome to the X chromosome, and so partially male-female genotype, um, or many, many other variations on that thing. They may be hormonally intersex, so they might have normal male genetic sex, for example, and um, a, a, a 
fairly well known intersex disorder. It's called androgen insensitivity, where, mm-hmm. where you have normal male sex, genetic sex, so your XY, normal number of chromosomes, everything is normal on the genetic side, but uh, you make normal amounts of hormones, but uh, you have a mutation in the receptor for those hormones, for the male hormones, and so your body is insensitive to the production of male hormones. Wow. Mm. And as a consequence, you develop as female. Right. Wow. So these are women that, that you know, look almost completely normal women, yeah. um, but they have testicles and a genetic sense of, of, of a man. Wow. They have testicles embedded in their mm-hmm. Yeah, the testicles abdomen. don't descend. Yeah. So they usually have to have them surgically removed because there's a high chance of um, cancer. cancer for oh, the cancer at high temperatures, so at body temperature. So, yeah. Which is exactly why testicles not really live, but they do. Yes. So. yes. <laughs> Reasons for all of these things. Yes. So, um, yeah, that's so bizarre. That's, yeah, that's so, a strange so, but, little detail. Yeah. But, so there, but there are and then many, many, many many variations on this thing. So there are there are individuals who actually do have ambiguous sexual identity um, mm. or conflicting because because development of um, normal um, sexual anatomy is a really, really complicated yeah. I mean <laughs> the medical students is always the most challenging set of lectures that we do with human human development because mm-hmm. you have your genetic sex, you have your hormonal sex. So if you are genetically female but you have male hormones for a variety of reasons that can happen, you develop the male. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have uh, your phenotypic sex, so what you look like on the outside, which has to do with a different set of hormones. Yeah. So, um, so any three of those, any one of those three components can be in disagreement with the others. Yeah. And then throw into the possibility that chimeras can exist in the people are mixed yeah. with male and female cells. Um, mosaics can exist where, uh, you know, if you have a normal male embryo uh, and you normally when you divide every cell gets exactly the same kind of chromosomes. But if you make a mistake early yeah. on in development yeah. and one cell of the two that are produced from the cell division gets both Y chromosomes, then you would have a 45X mm-hmm. remaining cell. That's a female cell uh-huh. with Turner syndrome. And you'd have 47XYY, which is in the other, which is Edward syndrome. Edward syndrome, not coin filter. No, yeah. I forget what yeah, There's too many of them. There are too yeah. many of them, but yeah. I forget them. Yeah. Um, and they're completely arbitrary, just like mineral names yeah, some are. Guy who, some guy who discovered this the first time. Yeah. But so, and then half of the so half of the cells would be normally genetic male cells, half of them would be male cells with natural white chromosome, and a quarter of a quarter would be abnormal female cells with no second X. So that person would be a mix of genetic cell types, but if they are all from themselves, they didn't arise from fusion with somebody else. Right. Right. Wow. So there are lots of ways that you can get intersex disorders, but the vast, vast, vast majority of people who have a gender disorder, gender different, you know, range of gender identifications, um, are people who are physically completely normal. Then all three of those. Genetic, hormonal, and exterior are on par. They're in, yeah, yeah. Those those are in agreement. It's a psychological. That's that's a different question. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A very very different question. So, you know, whether there's then a biological basis to that psychological, yeah, um, yeah. perspective. That's yeah. that I think is we're still out. The jury is still out on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And the atmosphere that we live in is not conducive to studying that with a disinterested quest for the actual facts 
I can hardly imagine. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it's 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 a curious thing whether or not um, the LGBTQ population would see that as would endorse that kind of a study or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it used to be for many many years. For example, there was a push to find the gay gene, you know, right. something that that allowed yeah. um, homosexual individuals to, to say, "Well, look, I was just born this way. It's, yeah. it's genetic." Yeah. The community has kind of moved against that now, and mm-hmm. because they don't want to believe it's deterministic, they don't want to believe that gender is fluid and people can pick whoever they want. And yeah. you know, this it really has nothing to do with biology. It's right. people are free to, to right. have whatever orientation they want. And um, how dare you tell me that biology is destiny? Right, <laughs> kind of like that. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's much more the dominant view right now, that there's much less of a push to try to find a biological basis for people's people orientations and, and identities than just simply accepting that they exist. And I have a right to have it if that's what I want. Right. right. Well, yeah. I have a right to have it without consequence X, Y, or Z, and with support P, Q, and R. <laughs> or... We've gone kind of far afield on this one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you could. We, we have been here for you know an hour and a half. You know, you've, been, you've been very indulgent of, uh, of letting us uh, continue to ask questions and, and extend the. Uh, yeah, it will, it will always be a red letter day for the reasons I mentioned in terms of you know I, I learned how identical twinning actually works today. Yeah, now that that, uh, that really I, I'm still kind of reeling from that. That is my that is my argument. I, I'm not sure if you would agree, uh-huh. but I think I think it's a very sustainable argument. Yeah, and I yeah. think I think it actually solves a lot of the philosophical problems mm-hmm. um, because because at that point, at that late of a stage, you know, say day five, when I think you know four or five when most winning happens uh, or all, um, mm-hmm. you've clearly established yourself as an organism, you know, as a as a developing yeah. human. Yeah. That's moving towards a greater stage of maturation. Yeah. And then what happens when the embryo splits at that point is is um, regeneration. That yeah. uh, we are very good at repairing ourselves yeah. from injury. And so you get a catastrophic injury, you lose half of your body and you replace it. Yeah. And the fact that each of the halves does this right. <laughs> is is where people's brain starts bending. Okay, so who's the original twin? And, yeah. But if you simplify the question, if you if you split an embryo in half and you throw away one half, yeah. and watch what happens to the surviving half. The surviving half acts like any organism acts when it's wounded. It repairs itself. So it yeah. tries to reestablish the original number of cells that were there into the various parts of the embryo at that stage mm-hmm. of development. It, it heals itself. You know, it reseals back into a ball. And if you watch the development of this half embryo compared to unsplit sibling controls mm-hmm. in an animal model, it advances exactly in synchrony with the unsplit twin. So there's not even a pause. It just keeps running. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it keeps doing exactly what it was doing before you split it. Wow. And it's just half the size. Yeah. And that argument to me, or that observation, would very strongly support the conclusion that you have a whole embryo, then you have a damaged embryo, and then you have a regenerated, uh, yeah. healed embryo. Yeah. And it's the same embryo. Because it started along this process at spermic fusion, yeah. it set up all the things that it's doing now, and it continues doing them without without any perceptible problem. So, my conclusion from that would be splitting an embryo at that stage constitutes an injury, and the embryo regenerates 
the purpose from that injury, but it's the same individual throughout that entire process. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what about the other half? <laughs> right. yeah. Now, the status of the other half, the status of the first half we just considered, is yeah. in no way dependent upon the as of yet undetermined status of the second half, but right. either way. I mean, logically, they're completely separate. Yeah. So now when we turn to consideration of the second half, there's also no evidence that, that the original embryo died. All we're left with is the challenge of knowing which of those two twins is the original and which is the newly generated sibling. And the fact that we can generate a sibling at that stage seems unfamiliar to us, but it's well within what happens in biology and many, many, many species. Really? Yeah. Yeah, asexual yeah. reproduction. You can go where you can. Yeah. Child yeah. on Earth can attack and you get two other ones yes. that are genetically identical to each other because both of them re-heals itself and continues on. And no one would argue that there are two that, that that single earthworm is not an individual. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, or that there's somehow two earthworms packed inside of one. And right. Just right. because yeah. it could get come yeah. out of my shovel and I'm sharpening. Right. right. Yeah. So the same thing is true of us. And I think I think that the most reasonable interpretation of twins is that one of the twins is the original. One of them is a newly generated um, individual that comes into existence at that moment. Yeah. Well, definitely, I will definitely be uh, again, like I said, with my with my uh, <laughs> intrinsic interest in the subjects for understanding my own uh, history. Definitely be looking <laughs> into that book. So, um, great. I think we should look back. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, yeah. thank you so for much. Cut that there. We appreciate yeah. that. That's uh, that's probably three episodes worth of material. There. So that's, that's a wealth of uh, a wealth. Have fun. Of, uh, we, we, we don't is, usually trick. Uh, I don't. I think it's. I think it's the first time we've 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 done that. But, well, um, and once you get started, it's like, yeah, then there's this, and then there's this. Yeah. But, but this is why biology is just so fascinating, because yeah. it is, to some extent, self-exploration. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, one of the fields of science where you're really asking questions about your own nature, about who you are. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think I think that, that kind of helps people. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever there's a book. You know, I, I must say, anyone who has twinning in their background is always more interested in twinning. They're always more interested in twinning, yes, yes. Then you can else. identify that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll read it and then I'll send it to Katie and Christy because uh, they will probably, yeah. Yeah, it should, uh, you know, I wrote the book, I'm hoping for, you know, kind of the educated non-scientists. Uh, yeah. You know, it's you gotta you gotta be a little fearless and be willing to. Okay, I didn't understand that word, but I'm just gonna flip over. Yeah. There is a gloss right to that. Yeah, that's <laughs> what those are for. That's what those are for. Uh, and this non-scientist will read the one where the philosophers in dialogue. Oh, that, yeah. that most most assuredly that yeah. one too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, if that book is worth purchasing just for that first chapter that really goes yeah. through how one is and what yeah. is it mean and tries to yeah. explain why. This isn't just a made-up idea, but if we don't have this, we can't do science. You know, we really cannot. If intrinsically, scientists understand it. They don't. They don't recognize it, and they do call it this focus. And, you know, right. Right. Um, but but it, it actually is necessary for us to do what we do. Yeah. Yeah, and you can either have it out consciously in front of you, and and you know be able to refer to it when you're in difficult situations, or you can just have it unconsciously in the background and stumble through. And, and then to... criticize anybody who, who actually has a better understanding than you do. Right? Yeah, always, always that. That's that's human nature in a nutshell. Well, okay. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you, well, thank you so very, much. Very, very welcome. If you enjoyed this episode, or it made you think. Come on over to That's So Second Millennium's Facebook page 
and leave a comment or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. Our intro music is Mars, the bringer of war, and our outro music is Venus, the bringer of peace. From the Planet Suite by Gustav Holst, performed by the U.S. Air Force Heritage of America Band. The recording is in the public domain and made available by MuseOpen.org. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Thanks for listening to another episode of That's So Second Millennium.